Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm talking to Dominique A. Tobel. Dominique Tobel is the Centennial Distinguished Professor of Nursing and Director of the Eleanor Crowder Bajoring Center for Nursing Historical Inquiry at the University of Virginia. She's co-editor of Global Health and Pharmacology and the author of several books, including Pills, Power, and Policy, The Struggle for, for Drug Reform in Cold War America and Its Consequences. And today we are talking about her brand new book, which is out from the University of Chicago Press. It's called Dr. Nurse, Science, Politics, and the Transformation of American Nursing. Um, and we are just thrilled to welcome um, Dominique to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Claire. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. So um, how did you uh, come to do this, this, this business that we call you know, history of medicine, history of nursing? Okay. Well, I I was a biochemistry major in the UK. I, I did my undergraduate at the University of Manchester, and I spent a year working at a drug company doing bench science. And it it really wasn't, I love science, but I don't like the bench work. And so I happened upon um, the history of science and medicine uh, and uh, found my way to the University of Pennsylvania, where I did my PhD in the history and sociology of science. Um, and I worked there. Um, my advisor was Ruth Schultz Cowan, um, who was wonderful. Um, but I also was privileged to work with Rosemary Stevens as well. And she, she and Ruth together had a, had a big influence on my dissertation work. Uh, and it was actually my advisor, Ruth Schultz Cowan, who um, during the coursework years of my graduate program, um, really made clear the importance of nurses as historical actors. And she introduced me to the Barbara Bates Center for the Study of the History of Nursing, which was also at Penn in the School of Nursing. Uh, and it was there that the Bates Center faculty, especially Patricia D'Antonio and Julie Fairman, 
really helped to nurture and guide my growing interest in the history of nursing. And and they have remained steadfast mentors ever since, um, for which I'm immensely grateful. And I I think, you know, all of my mentors have really shaped the development of, of this latest book, Dr. Nurse. Wonderful. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of this book? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely does have its roots in my years as a graduate student, because that is where I developed my interest in the history of nursing. My first book, Pills, Power and Policy, really uh, had, had, had no engagement with um, nursing or the history of nursing. But then uh, in my first position, faculty position at the University of Minnesota, part of my work there was to lead uh an oral history project, the University of Minnesota Academic Health Center Oral History Project. And it was in that project that this book really began to take shape. Uh, and so it was, I was digging around in the university's archival records, uh, and I, I conducted interviews with nurses who had trained, worked, and taught at the School of Nursing and in the university hospital. And it was in, in this research that it really became clear to me that nursing was absolutely a critical lens through which to examine major changes that have taken place in American healthcare in the second half of the 20th century. And I was particularly, not surprising given the name of the Oral History Project, I was particularly interested in the emergence of academic health centers and their impact. And I really saw nursing as a critical um, lens through which to view the emergence of academic health centers, and particularly the role of the state on health professions, education, and healthcare delivery. So that's that's where the project began and really took off. Wonderful. Well, um, the project is about something that you call, um, or the book is about something that you call the the academic project of American nursing. I wonder if you could tell us what what is the academic project of American nursing? Yes. Um, so. I, you know, I use the academic project to refer to the efforts of American nurses to establish nursing as an academic discipline and nurses as, as valued researchers in the decades after World War II. And this academic project, as I describe in the book, entailed several components, raising the educational level of nurses, creating and demarcating the boundaries of a distinct science of nursing, and establishing nursing PhD programs to prepare new generations of nurse scientists able to conduct the clinical research necessary to improve patient care. And if, if you give me a moment, I can say a little bit more about this just to give a bit more context. Because after World War II, nursing really faced a crisis. Um, the arrival of new technologies, potent new pharmaceuticals, complex surgeries, all these innovations had made patient care increasingly complex, and the regimented procedure-based training of hospital-based diploma, diploma programs that had predominated in nursing education before the war was inadequate. Nurses often found themselves without the availability or the knowledge or authority to provide appropriate care to critically ill or dying patients. Um, and so beginning in the 1950s, nurse educate, educators introduced the Bachelor of Science in Nursing, or the BSN. Um, and these were programs located on university and college campuses. And this new model of undergraduate nursing education really emphasized science-based learning, clinical thinking, and patient-centered practice. And the programs integrated the biomedical, behavioral, and social sciences, as well as emphasizing nursing theory and patient-centered practice. So because of this interdisciplinary preparation, the BSN prepared nurse was really well established to, for their new role as an expert and independent practitioner. 
And um, by the 1960s, nurses who then had also undergone advanced clinical training at the master's degree level also took on new advanced specialty practice roles that in areas that included psychiatric nursing, maternal child health, oncology, nephrology and critical care nursing, as well as nurse practitioners who increasingly provide important primary care services. And, you know, each of these educational innovations was predicated on the belief that nursing was grounded in a body of knowledge that was specific to nursing. So by emphasizing a health perspective rather than a disease perspective, by considering the patient holistically and by prioritizing the agency of the patient in shaping their health, nursing and its science sought to stand apart from the reductionist model of medicine that emphasized disease, diagnosis, and cure. And so this brings us to the other two components of nursing's academic project. Rather than relying on the knowledge claims and theories of the biomedical or behavioral sciences, a key aspect of nursing's academic project was for nurse researchers and theorists to build a science of nursing. And nursing's academic project thus entailed creating and demarcating the boundaries of a distinct science of nursing, and also then establishing nursing PhD programs to prepare new generations of nurse scientists. Um, and is um, do, do you have a, an argument, or or can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Nurse's argument about the, about the academic project of of American nursing? Is it a good? Thing? Is it a bad? Is it a bad thing? Is it you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, I think um, the academic project has been, um, you know, was really important, and and that the, the American nurses did um, did make substantial gains by the turn of the twenty first century in establishing nursing as an academic discipline. But what I argue is that that academic project did re, does remain incomplete, um, in, in part because of. Um, gender politics related to um, higher education, um, politics within the post-war research university, and particularly gendered interprofessional politics within academic health centers. And, you know, the difficulties that nurses faced in establishing nursing as an academic discipline was also shaped by kind of the challenges um, with discipline formation in general and kind of the boundary work that's uh, really critical part of establishing new disciplines, especially in the health professions, where there's a lot of intersect and overlap between the knowledge domains and practice areas of health professions. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that in terms of how nursing science kind of defines itself in relation to biomedical and behavioral science research that is really ramping up at academic health centers at this time. Yeah, so from the late 1950s through the early 1980s, um, I really see this. these are those critical decades when American nurses are constructing their science of nursing. And this science, they saw it as, as being essential to providing the basis of nursing practice but they also um, saw it the, the development of nursing science not only as critical to improving patient care, but also to secure their roles within the post-war research university. Uh, you know, remember this is you know nurse nursing education is really for the first time really squarely centered in the university in the post-war decades, and so in building their science. Um, American nurses drew upon the biomedical, social, and behavioral sciences. And by utilizing the behavioral and social sciences, academic nurses sought to claim distinctive knowledge, skills, and expertise explicitly rooted in an understanding of patient behavior and attitudes, which they um, 
and not physicians would contribute to the improvement of patient care because during these decades, you know, physicians weren't particularly interested in um, expanding um, the domains of um, their kind of scientific base into the behavioral or social sciences. So this was really a distinctive area that nurses, nurses could claim expertise on. Um, and so in this way, academic nurses constructed nursing science as an interdisciplinary science that integrated psychological, cultural, social and physiological understandings of health, illness and the patient, and particularly the nurse-patient relationship. But given this interdisciplinarity, um, you know, nurses really grapple with how to distinguish nursing science from the theory and knowledge of the biomedical and behavioral science disciplines it drew upon. So here's where that boundary work I mentioned a few moments ago is really important. Um, and so during the 1950s, 60s and 70s, a small group of nurse theorists worked to demarcate nursing's empirical focus establish a theoretical frameworks by which nurses could understand and influence patient health and distinguish nursing science from the biomedical and behavioral sciences. And by the 1970s, the theorists had identified four concepts that defined nursing's empirical focus. The whole person, so not simply the locus of disease or disability. Health, again, as opposed to disease and its treatment. The influence of the social and physical environment of an, on an individual's health. And nursing, that is what nurses do for and with patients to enable and support patients as agents in the pursuit of their own goals. And in this way, um, nursing, as, as one nurse theorists, theorist wrote, like nursing had, quote, moved from doing for patients to working with patients, helping patient people to care for themselves and involving them in their care and decisions about their health. But as academic nurses were constructing their theory-oriented science, Academic physicians were also establishing the discipline of clinical epidemiology and asserting the superiority of the randomized controlled trial for generating the most objective and reliable knowledge. And they did so in the context of the quality assessment movement in healthcare, which, which really aimed to systematic, systematically measure the outcome of patients' care so as to determine which clinical interventions worked and which didn't, and to really hold physicians accountable for those outcomes. And this component is um, of is, is referred to as outcomes research. So the primacy of the biomedical sciences, particularly in the post-war university and academic health center, but also the growing importance of outcomes research and the broader quality assessment movement in healthcare shaped the ways in which research methods and the evidence they generated were evaluated and accorded status. So by the 1970s, the randomized controlled trial had emerged as the gold standard research method in clinical medicine, but nurse scientists preferred instead descriptive quantitative studies, observational studies, and qualitative research methods that relied on the invocation of theory rather than statistical analysis as a means of validation. And this meant that the knowledge their research generated occupied a comparative lower position in the so-called hierarchy of evidence. And this led nursing science and nurse scientists, I argue, um, to being undervalued within the research economy, even though nurse scientists were contributed to clinical research, um, important insights into outcomes, particularly outcomes tied to nursing interventions, but they also contributed what was missing from physicians' intervention-focused approach, evidence into the social and political context of patient care that could help explain why individuals made the choices they did about their own health and healthcare. So including the including why they may or may not take the prescribed interventions that 
physicians or other clinicians, um, you know, wanted them to take. So nurses really were contributing um, distinct um, and important um, insights into the in, into um, patient health and and patient patient decision making. I, w- I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the context in which all of this is unfolding. I, I just have to say for our listeners that Dr. Nurses, and in addition to being this um, wonderful close analysis of um, of the uh, of of of, nur- of nursing and the evolution of nursing itself, it's also a really groundbreaking book in the history of academic health centers. Um, So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the political and institutional context in which academic nursing is emerging in the 1960s, um, and in particular, what role academic health centers played? Yeah, so thanks for that question. Um, You know, before before I get to the academic health centers, there's, there's another element of the broader institutional and political context that are important to acknowledge here. So that first piece is that Nursing's academic project took place in the context of the changing character and mission of American universities. So with the establishment of the National Science Foundation and expansion of the National Institutes of Health after World War II, the federal government became the primary patron of basic research. And in response, universities increasingly prioritized research and particularly the acquisition of federal research funding over their teaching and service missions. And so in the in the new like post-war research university, faculty were rewarded for securing research grants, collaborating with industry, and generating patents and publications. And at the same time, the federal government and its policymakers ensured that graduate education, and particularly at the doctoral level, became an integral component of the nation's research enterprise. So that's one contextual factor that's important. I mean, the second piece is that nursing's academic project, as you kind of mentioned, also occurred as many American academic health institutions were being conceptualized or reconfigured as academic health centers. And these are institutional umbrellas that combine a university's health science schools, biomedical research institutes, and affiliated teaching hospitals and clinics. And they were established to increase coordination and improve efficiencies among the health science schools and between the university and its teaching hospitals. Academic health centers were also designed to dismantle the disciplinary silos that had previously characterized the health sciences, and in which really the medical school and medical sciences had really kind of been uh, dominant over nursing and, say, public health or dentistry. Um, So academic health centers were really intended to promote interdisciplinarity in research and education and a team approach to clinical practice by integrating nursing, medicine, dentistry, pharmacy, public health and other allied healthcare professions. Um, It's also important that policymakers also look to academic health centers to coordinate the supply and distribution of healthcare professionals within the region. This is a really important piece. Um, And so by the late 1970s, academic health centers had emerged as a dominant institution in American healthcare. And so given these institutional changes, nursing faculty um, sought to adapt to the post-war research economy by shifting their focus to securing external funding, engaging in research, establishing themselves as producers and disseminators of expert knowledge, and really securing the academic status of their discipline, nursing science, within the post-war research university and the academic health center. 
and so in this context, nursing science served not only, this is you know, what I argue in this context, nursing science served not only as a way for academic nurses to transform nursing practice and patient care, but also as a means by which they could secure nursing's legitimacy and status within universities and academic health centers. Can you tell us a little bit more about how academic nurses fit into the larger governing structure of academic health centers? And I'm the subtext of this question is um, is about the tension between um, as at, at nursing education and medical education. Yes, um, I mean, really, one of the challenges, uh, one of the major challenges that confronted academic nurses in the second half of the 20th century was how would academic nurses working within academic health centers balance their responsibilities for education, research and patient care? Um, You know, and in fact, one consequence of nursing's academic project was an essential severing of the relationship between nursing education and nursing's practice base. So when um, nursing hospital education, sorry, when nursing education moved into the university after the war, education and practice were for the first time in nursing's history separated. When when nursing education was primarily in hospitals, the, the nurses in the hospital were like the teachers um, were actively teaching and, and actually practicing at the same time. But in the university, nursing faculty rarely held clinical appointments in the teaching hospital's nursing service. And in fact, some educators believed a strict separation between education and practice was essential to establishing nursing as an academic discipline. In other words, nursing faculty were discouraged from being clinically active. But in the 1960s, some nurse leaders saw the cost of this approach and and worked to really reunify nurse education and service but they face significant institutional and political barriers. Nursing deans at a handful of academic health centers sought to bring academic nursing closer to the structural model of academic medicine, whereby faculty would be clinically active and hold appointments in the teaching hospitals or clinics. And in this model, as as was the case in academic medicine, nursing schools would have responsibility for an authority over the quality of education, particularly nursing education, care and research that took place in the university's teaching hospitals and clinics. And this would also ensure that nursing had an equal and parallel role to the other health professions within academic health centres. But these early unification efforts made clear that academic medicine had its limits as a model for academic nursing. Most significantly, nursing faculty, unlike their colleagues in medicine, could not be reimbursed for nursing care services. Because physicians billed for the services they performed and were reimbursed by third-party payers, um, they had the ability to generate substantial clinical income from medical schools and academic health centres, particularly after the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid. Nurses, however, were salaried employees and were not directly reimbursed for their services. Instead, the cost of nursing care were wrapped into the total cost for hospital services. So for nursing faculty to be compensated for their clinical practice required that nursing deans and faculty negotiate individually with the hospital and other service agencies. But as neither public nor private insurers directly reimburse nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, or other advanced practice nurses for their services until the late 1990s, to say nothing of the reimbursement for registered nurses, these negotiations invariably generated mixed results. So, you know, as a result, at least until the late 1990s, academic nurses who engaged in clinical practice had no mechanism for generating clinical income for their schools. 
Instead, the revenue for most nursing schools instead came from state support, tuition and grants. And without a mechanism of generating clinical revenue, it's been um, it's been really difficult for nursing schools to justify, let alone prioritize clinical practice, even as nurse leaders recognize the benefits of having a clinically engaged faculty. And the absence of nursing faculty from teaching hospitals has meant that they had little contact with physicians, and this disadvantaged them as they sought to claim their rightful place as equals within the interprofessional healthcare team and and within academic health centre governance. Nursing leaders had hoped that unification would promote interprofessional collaboration within academic health centres, but the outcomes were usually mixed. And if I can just give a brief example here, um, which might be helpful. A unification model was introduced at the University of Rochester at the founding of its academic health center in 1972, and this was intended to facilitate collaboration with physicians and other health personnel. And the parallel parallel structures at the clinical chief level were particularly important for planning, implementing, and evaluating the specialty programs in patient care, the education of nurses and physicians, and also research. However, according to Loretta, sorry, Loretta Ford, founding dean of the University of Rochester School of Nursing, the effectiveness of those interprofessional collaborations ultimately depended on the personalities and styles of the medical and nursing chiefs, as well as the availability of sources. Um, so, quoting from Ford, some medical men, sorry, sorry, they were all men, sorry, all men, some medical chiefs, all are men. Um, recognize nursing as an independent, autonomous professional group, which forms the basis for effective collaboration. Other medical chiefs, however, review, view nurses as handmaidens to physicians, and this had led to friction and conflict. In these situations, the physicians struggled to adapt to the parallel organization and structure and instead considered themselves in charge and responsible for everything, including nursing. Thus, as academic nurses work to rebuild the connection between education and practice and establish academic nursing as parallel and complementary to academic medicine, they confronted resistance from physicians as well as hospital administrators who were all too comfortable with the gendered and hierarchical status within academic health centers in which physicians dominated. And these structural limitations and interprofessional politics continue to impact nursing and healthcare today. In 2016, the American Association of Colleges of Nursing reported that academic nurses have, quote, minimal, meaningful participation in health system governance. And the AACN cited the tuition dependent structure of academic nursing as a barrier to full integration and concluded that because nursing faculty have been unable to develop robust faculty practices, academic nurses are, quote, not positioned as a partner in healthcare transformation. Mm, that and um, yeah, anyway, a fascinating backstory as to why, for those of us who work in academic health centers, um, what why the politics sort of are the way they they are. Um, I would be really remiss if I if if I didn't um, bring up uh, the importance of um, a race and class analysis to your argument. Um, I wonder if you could tell us about the development of racial and class inequities in nursing education in the mid to late 20th century. And um, in particular, why was academic nursing relatively impervious to the feminist movement and the civil rights movement? Yeah, this, this, this is such an important um, question. Um, so, you know, during the formative years of nursing's academic project, 
it's it's really important to like signal who was invited to participate basically and only those able to advance through the educational hierarchy to attain the formal credential of first a bsn then a master's degree and eventually a doctorate were invited to contribute to nursing's academic project and particularly to the establishment of the science of nursing and since the introduction of trained nursing in the late 19th century Healthcare and nursing education, as well as higher education in general, was segregated in the Jim Crow South and heavily circumscribed by racial discrimination in the North. Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, as well as men, regardless of race, face significant barriers accessing undergraduate and graduate nursing education. And these barriers meant that nursing's um, academic project was advanced primarily by white female nurses a fact that had consequences for the types of theories developed and research pursued. Um, As this first generation of nurse scientists engage in research to improve patient care, they prioritize research they hoped that would be legible within the post-war biomedical research economy. So in the process, they actually dismissed calls from nurses of color and public health nurses, as well as a growing array of health activists who really were demanding community-based research into the effects of poverty or racism of health and health outcomes. Um, And they also dismissed calls from feminist nurses to reject the patriarchal frameworks of biomedicine. Um, You know, this, even, even though the work that many of the nurse theorists and researchers were doing were like kind of cognizant of the broader political context, particularly around this growing critique of medicine in, in particular, but also healthcare more generally, and particularly the paternalism of phys- physicians and the reductionism of medicine, they the, the academic nurses were really not fully kind of situated within these the, 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 these activist movements, even as many within nursing and, and medicine were. But the academic nurses were really kind of fairly isolated from this activist mission and were really focused on making sure that nursing and nursing science would be legible within the post-war biomedical research economy. Um, I'll return, um, I'll come back to the circle back to this in the moment, but I also, you know, in this context, it's also, you know, thinking about I mean, thinking about who could access nursing education, um, something that's quite distinctive about nursing, particularly relative to um, many of the other health professions, is that by the 1960s, there were actually multiple educational pathways into nursing. Uh, In the 1950s, hoping to resolve nursing shortages, nurse educators had introduced one-year licensed practical nursing programs or LPM programs and two-year associate degree programs. And in this new hierarchy, licensed practical nurses were tasked with the so-called traditional bed and body work of nursing, while associate degree educated nurses were to have greater responsibilities than the LPN, but less than that of the BSN educated nurse. And it was the BSN prepared nurse who assumed the status of the so-called professional nurse and the responsibilities of the expert and independent clinical clinician. Professional nurses then typically after completing an advanced graduate education would go on to serve as clinical supervisors, educators, or administrators. And diploma trained nurses, those who were trained in three-year hospital programs, were expected to complete a BSN in order to be considered a professional nurse. And this educational hierarchy actually exacerbated already existing hierarchies within the nursing workforce that stratified nurses by education level, family income, and class, and which were further compounded by race. 
I mean, by the early 1970s, the majority of black nurses graduated from LPN, associate degree and diploma programs, which subsequently limited their opportunities for career advancement, leadership and faculty positions, all of which required at a minimum a BSN degree. And as black nursing leaders at the time and historians since have explained, marginalization of black nurses and nurses of color were the product not only of overt discrimination and segregation in nursing education prior to the civil rights legislation of the 60s, but also to the, quote, more subtle and sophisticated forms of institutional institutionalized racism that persisted thereafter. Um, and, you know, interestingly, through the late 20th and early 21st centuries, nurses and healthcare organizations continue to debate the merits of maintaining these multiple educational pathways into, into nursing. And despite repeated calls to establish the BSN as the minimum educational requirement for entry into practice, nurse leaders, some nurse leaders have been unwilling to give up the multiple pathways for entry because they enable social mobility for nurses who may have chosen the wrong path for entry into nursing or now have more, have the resources to pursue advanced education. Um, and by the early 2000s, the importance of those multiple pathways to increasing the diversity of the nursing work workforce and to improving access to higher levels of education particularly among underrepresented and historically marginalized populations, were becoming apparent. Um, and in fact, in 2010, the Institute of Medicine, or now the, which is now the National Academy of Medicine, had called for the proportion of nurses with baccalaureate de degrees to increase from 50% to 80% by 2020. And it did so in response to you know, more than a decade's worth of compelling evidence that hospitals with higher percentages of BSN-educated nurses had better patient outcomes. Nevertheless, the Institute of Medicine recognized the associate degree remained a critical entry point into nursing, particularly for people from rural, rural areas, disadvantaged backgrounds, or from underrepresented populations. And four years later, the National Academy of Medicine reaffirmed the importance of maintaining and strengthening the different educational pathways into nursing. But to be sure, um, these educational pathways have not resolved the problems of racial inequities in nursing. In the early 21st century, as, as, it has, as, as it has in the past, racial inequities persist in nursing, especially within academic nursing, where still 82% of full-time nursing faculty are white. And this lack of diversity in nursing, especially among the first generations of nurse scientists, shaped what were considered important areas of research. Um, so, for example, um, Lucille Davis, who was a faculty member at Rush University in the early 1970s, she argued that nurse researchers from racial and ethnic minority groups bring a unique perspective to the research process. Davis um, and other black nurse leaders saw it as absolutely essential that we have more nurses from minority groups trained as researchers if nursing is to develop research models relevant to the healthcare needs of minorities. And Davis was joined by other black nursing leaders, including the newly established National Black Nurses Association, in calling for the increased proportion of black nurses and other nurses of color and advancing, advancing research to increase the body of knowledge about healthcare and the health needs of patients of color. But through, throughout the late 20th century, nursing, struggles, um, nursing schools struggled to recruit and retain doctoral students and faculty of color because of persistent structural racism. And you know, I, I argue in the book that this has had long-term implications for nursing science. By the early 1990s, there remained a dearth of nursing research on the experiences and nursing uh, on the experiences and nursing care needs of patients of color. 
Indeed, more than 8,000 clinical studies were published in U.S. journals between 1983 and 1991. But as a scientist Eileen Jackson had reported that only 59 or 0.7% included African-Americans in the study sample. And the majority of these 59 studies didn't focus on the major health problems identified among African-Americans, nor did they address the reasons for or propose solutions to the disproportionately high morbidity and mortality rates in Black communities. And Jackson concluded that simply including marginalized groups in a study sample does not make the research relevant to the health of those being studied. And these legacies continue into the present as ongoing racial inequities in nursing significantly undermine nursing's ability to address racial health disparities and structural racism in healthcare. This is a really um, lovely segue to our next to last question, which is about your conclusion. Um, So the conclusion to Dr. Nurse argues that in the early 20th century, nursing's academic project remains incomplete. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about in in what ways is it incomplete, and then why 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 is it why is the academic project incomplete? Yeah, so I you know my, my I conclude that by saying there are several ways in which nursing's academic project remains incomplete, and this is according to the standards of those championing the project since the nineteen fifties. So as I mentioned a few moments ago. For some in nursing, the inability to establish the BSN as the minimum credential for professional nursing practice reflects a limitation of nursing's academic project. I mean, I see it and many within also within nursing see that it's actually those educational pathways as being absolutely critical. But for some, establishing the BSN would have been was an important goal of the academic project. I also see the persistence of racial inequities in nursing as also reflecting the limits of nursing's academic project. Diversification of the health workforce is integral to improving access to and quality of care, particularly in underserved communities of colour. Another way in which the project remains incomplete was that the boundaries of nursing science are actually still contested. Um, Some academic nurses are um, kind of reasserting that, that nursing's, quote, core disciplinary knowledge is important, while others are debating whether and how to incorporate knowledge and skills derived from emerging sciences, such as the omics, big data, and biomedical and health informatics, like how to integrate those into nursing science. And moreover, while nursing theory was really kind of a lot of energy was invested in developing nursing theory, it's actually infrequently used to frame nursing research. Instead, theoretically oriented nursing research is really dominated by theories from psychology and sociology. So this really raises questions about the, you know, what actually constitutes nursing science and what are the boundaries of that science? Um, And as part of this, some academic nurses are debating the role of interdisciplinary scholars. These are PhD faculty who are not nurses. Like what role should interdisciplinary scholars play in the development of nursing science and as faculty members in schools of nursing, which from my perspective as a historian is, you know, it's it's, it's problematic to be debating this given that interdisciplinarity has and interdisciplinary scholars have been at the core of nursing's academic project from the get go. So as my book makes clear, these ongoing debates over what types of research, which types of theories and which types of researchers can contribute to the development of nursing science, revisit and rehash debates of the 1960s and 70s when academic nurses 
first sought to define and erect boundaries around nursing science and demarcate who should be permitted to contribute to nursing's epistemological project. Um, as in the past, um, again, this is another limitation of the pro academic project, the degree of research funding available for nursing science is impacting the field. Relative to other types of health science and biomedical research, nursing research is poorly funded. Um, and academic nurses um, have yet, as I mentioned earlier, academic nurses have yet to achieve full partnership in healthcare um, delivery, education and research. And again, noting the 2016 American Association of Colleges of Nurses, nursing reported that, you know, with academic nurses having only minimal meaningful participation in health system governments, governance, and that nursing faculty are also not integrated into health system leadership roles, are only marginally integrated into clinical services, and nurse scientists' research is siloed within nursing schools. Um, so picking up on what I said earlier, because nursing faculty, um, unlike their physician colleagues, have been unable to develop robust faculty practices, the majority of PhD prepared faculty aren't engaging in clinical practice. And so this is undermining their role in health system governance. So, in the, you know, how are we to understand and explain these mixed results of nursing's academic project? Um, you know, this, you know, academic nurses have demonstrated the improvements in health outcomes made possible by nursing's academic project. Um, and so, you know, it's really this kind of this mixed outcome is really, um, you know, really important to consider. And I argue that the effectiveness with which academic nurses made their claims reflects the influence of various intersecting politics. Particularly important has been the impact of disciplinary, institutional and professional politics and the shaping of those politics by gender and race on the making of a new discipline. So if first thinking about the politics of academia in, and interprofessional politics of healthcare, you know, thinking within the post-war research economy, medical schools and the physician scientists that taught in them have been really very effective at capitalizing on the post-war research economy. Nursing schools operating within the same political economy, but because they were relative newcomers to university campuses, nursing schools and their faculty confronted significant challenges to establishing their discipline and securing their status in the post-war university and research economy. And as I argue in the books, and as I've talked about here, um, some of these challenges were gendered, but others were, were epistemological in character. So in terms of gender, male physicians and hospital administrators within academic health centers, as well as university leaders, were often uncomfortable with the claims of predominantly female academic nurses for for greater expertise and authority. They preferred the gendered and hierarchical status of the older model of nursing education and practice. <clears throat> but the status of academic nursing and uh, nurses and of nursing science has also been shaped by the relationship to and changes within biomedicine. So this kind of epistemological piece. So while nursing re rejected the medical model and sought to distinguish nursing science from the biomedical sciences, they constructed their nursing science as a theoretical and empirical discipline, one drawing heavily on theoretical frameworks and qualitative research methods. But they did so at the same time that academic physicians were establish establishing the empirical and statistically derived discipline of clinical epidemiology and asserting the primacy of the randomized controlled trial for generating the most objective and reliable knowledge. And in this context, academic nurses' path to knowledge development um, contributed to the undervaluing of nursing science and the siloing of nurse scientists within the research economy and within academic health centers.
But this history also reveals the importance of the intersections of health um, and higher education policy and the politics of state policymaking on the education of American healthcare professionals. So Nursing's academic project has always existed in tension with the nursing's workforce needs. And so both have been shaped by and also shaping of the politics of state health policymaking. So since the 1950s, as I show in the book, state legislators have looked increasingly to academic health institutions receiving state funds to expand educational opportunities and better coordinate the production and distribution of the state's health workforce. And this was also a time when policymakers were were concerned about racial inequities in higher education. Um, So state policymakers looked to state-supported nursing schools to not only provide enough professional nurses to meet state's healthcare needs, but also to resolve problems of educational access, particularly for um, underrepresented and historically marginalized uh, populations. So these intersections of nursing's academic project with state health politics and policymaking have helped shore up nursing's educational system as one characterized by differential pathways into nursing. So this is a really important kind of contextual piece for understanding some of the limitations to nursing's academic project. So, I mean, in this way, I really see Dr. Nurse as having put the state really into the center of the history of American healthcare. Um, and providing scholars and policymakers with a case study of the ways in which state governments, in concert with state-funded nursing schools and academic health centers, the ways in which they've worked to address disparities in the distribution of healthcare resources. Well, there's so much more to be written about this. It's it it, it seems, um, and and that 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 brings us to our traditional final question here on the New Books Network, which is, um, what are you working on next? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I'm actually really excited because my new project really does build on on my previous project, this Dr. Nurse book. So I'm really focusing on my next project on the history of nurse-led clinics. These are sites in which nurses have worked to implement innovations in healthcare delivery to improve access to access to healthcare services among underserved rural and urban communities. Such innovations have included the establishment of nurse-led rural health clinics and community health centers in urban areas during the 1960s and 70s. Um, And particularly, we see the, and I talk about this in the book briefly, the expansion of nurse-led clinics since the 1980s. So I skimmed the surface of the history of nurse-led clinics in the book. Um, And in fact, it was during the research for Dr. Nurse, that I came across the work of Nancy Melio, a public health nurse who established a community health center, the Mom and Tots Neighborhood Center in a low-income, predominantly Black neighborhood of Detroit in the mid-1960s. And I was struck by the fact that while academic nurses were advocating a model of patient care and research that ostensibly undermined the reductionism and dehumanizing effects of medicine, however important their clinical research, they weren't actually addressing what a chorus of 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 health activists were demanding to address what today we know as the structural and social determinants of health. But he had a practicing public health nurse actually doing work to create, to to address those structural determinants and to advocate change within within healthcare delivery. So um, the other thing I noted in my book was that since the 1960s and intensifying from the 1980s onwards, a growing number of nursing schools established academic nurse-managed clinics. So these were entities owned by nursing schools, managed by nurses, and increasingly nurse practitioners, and providing direct nursing care to patients. 
and nursing schools did so to provide sites of academic clinical practice for faculty, as well as clinical teaching sites for their undergraduate and graduate students, and research sites for their faculty for their faculty and doctoral students, and also to provide needed health service to under, underserved communities. Um, but you know, these nurse-led clinics have um, dealt with a lot of financial precarity. Um, because they, they were typically contingent on philanthropic and grant funding. And so often when the funding ran out, the clinics ended. Other issues were related to kind of licensure, certification, and other regulations governing nurse practice within each state. Um, and particularly this, the, the issue of the lack of public and private third party reimbursement for nurse practitioners. And even when they did finally begin reimbursing nurse practitioners, they did so at a lower rate than physicians further undermining the financial viability of nurse managed clinics. Um, so my current project builds on this kind of early kind of skimming that I did in the in the last book. Um, so I'm really focused on the role of nurse-led clinics used in a case study approach, and it will include community-based initiatives like the Mom and Tot Center in Detroit, as well as those that are academic nurse-managed centers. So I'm in the process of identifying case studies. I've, I've noted a few, which I'm really excited to really get into, and that will span from the 1960s through at least the early 2000s. And my goal in this new project is to examine the history of nurse-led clinics First, in the context of evolving health policy and political debates over healthcare financing, reimbursement, scope of practice legislation, and other issues that have constrained nurses' ability to practice independently and with autonomy. But also, secondly, to examine nurse-led clinics as examples of innovative models of care delivery with the intent of providing enhanced care to different underserved populations. So I'll be thinking about how has the nursing model of care shaped the types of primary and community care that nurses and nurse practitioners provided in these clinics? How did intent match up with reality? What role was played by the communities that were intended to serve in, in setting the parameters of the clinic? And how effective were these nurse-led clinics at addressing structural inequities in care? So I'm really excited to, um, I've started this research, and I'm really excited to see where it takes me. Well, it sounds like a wonderful project, and I hope you'll consider coming back on the New Books Network to talk about it once um, once that one is finished. Thank you so much, Dominique, for your time and um, for sharing your, your wonderful new book, Dr. Nurse, with us. Thank you, Claire. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you today.